The title of today's message is Re-Christianizing a Pagan Culture. That is not just a title of a message. It is a mandate that is going out to every one of us here this morning and to everybody who will be tuning in over the internet. It's a mandate that asks the question, what kind of culture are we going to leave for our children, for our children's children, and for posterity? Are we going to leave them a culture that has light or darkness, a culture of life or death, of freedom and liberty, or slavery and bondage to tyranny and sin? That is the question that we need to ask this morning. Western civilization as a whole, America in particular, is standing at a crossroads. This cultural war is something that each and every one of us has to make a decision about personally, whether we're going to engage or not. We're standing at a crossroads, and the heart of the issue is this. Who is your God? Who is your God? Are you going to worship the Lord, the King of glory who reigns in love, or are you going to worship and serve the creature? That is the war that we're facing today. In Romans chapter 1, we see the progression of a culture that has turned away from the worship of the Lord, from the worship of the God who rules all things with his love. And in Romans chapter 1, we see the cultural impact of idolatry. It says, although the, even the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood through the things that are made, people chose to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And the end result of that was that God gave them over to vile passions. In the climax or the epitome of a culture that is turned away from worshiping the Lord, according to Romans chapter 1, is it says that women have left the natural use, specifically of men, and then men have left the natural use of women and burned in lust for one another. According to Romans 1, that is a cultural sign that we have turned away from worshiping God and we're heading down a road to spiritual and moral destruction. And then Romans goes on to kind of describe the culture that comes when we give ourselves to idolatry. Romans 1, 28 through 32 says this, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. That is the road that idolatry leads us to, a culture of darkness and death that is described by Paul. Do we want to be responsible and on our watch for giving our children such a culture. 
Do we want to be the ones who fail to hand the baton of a, of a culture of freedom and liberty and of truth and righteousness governed by love? Do we want to fail to pass that on to future generations? Or are we going to be a people who turn the tide of idolatry in our day and bring forth freedom once again? Our society is headed down that road just described unless there is a power revealed that can turn the tide of cultural degradation and idolatry. And that power is not going to come from the White House. It's not going to come from the media. It's not going to come from Wall Street or Main Street. The whole world is groaning under this bondage of darkness and it's waiting for a power to be revealed. And that power can only come from one place. Us, the church of Jesus Christ. It says that we have this treasure in these jars of clay. And many would say, well, who am I? Who are we that God could turn such a tide culturally through us? But that is exactly what God's word says. That the hope of the nations is bound up with the state of the church and the state of God's people. So there's three things that I hope to accomplish this morning. The first is a commitment to the apostolic calling. The apostolic calling is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or, as it says in another place, bringing the nations into the obedience of Christ. Another way to put it is the way that the Spirit of God put it to the Apostle Paul, to turn people from the darkness to the light from the power of the devil to the power of God. The second thing is that I want to birth in us an absolute conviction that this is an attainable goal. If we don't believe that it is attainable, then we will disconnect and we will not engage the power of God to turn this tide, to turn the light on among the nations. You see, this question was the same question that the um, Hebrews had to face outside the promised land. Go and take the land. But they went and they spied it out. And they said, we're just grasshoppers in the midst of giants. But there was a Joshua and Caleb who said, no, God is with us. Let us go. Let us enter in. The Lord is giving us this land. And though that generation perished in the wilderness, those two who dared to believe God, they did enter in. And God fulfilled his promises with them. This same question is being asked of all believers today. And, and I remember those early years in Bible college. And I would listen to these professors describe the moral and spiritual and cultural degeneration of American society. But they said it almost as though prepare for a total overrunning and re-persecution of the church, for a total destruction of the, our nation because they did not see any solution. They did not see that there is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn the tide. So if we can awaken that conviction in us, we're on the way to being the solution rather than adding ourselves to being part of the problem. And the third thing is I'd, I hope to give us somewhat of a vision of how to accomplish it. Now, as many of you know, this last year I became a teacher at Fortis Academy. And one of the classes I teach is called Omnibus. And it's a class that combines history, literature, and theology. 
And at the end of the last semester, I asked my seventh grade class, what is Omnibus all about? And one of the students said to me, do you mean the book or your class? And I thought, well, I'm more curious. How about this class? And this seventh grade student said to me, this class is all about raising up a generation that will restore Christianity in America. Amen. And, that, and that's where I got the title of this message, because we need to re-Christianize the American culture that has been re-paganized. See, this, this nation inherited a Christian faith, and it was the very um, foundation of who we are as a people, freedom and liberty because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fear of the Lord. So this omnibus class, 7th grade, and then I also teach 8th grade, is really intriguing to me because the 7th graders, they compare ancient civilizations they can, we compare it by reading books such as Homer and Gilgamesh, and right now we're reading Herodotus histories, and these books show you what a pagan culture looks like. And as I read these books, I mean, I'll be honest, I know how bad paganism is because of my pre-Christian days. But when you read these stories, you're, you're, you're thinking to yourself, you've got to be kidding me. Like a, a father who was also a king was trapped in a building and it was burning. And so what is the solution? His wife says, kill your two youngest sons and use them as a bridge to get out. And you, and you think about Christian culture that says, you know, when the ship is sinking, women and children first. If you ever were to um, sacrifice their, your, their lives for your own, you would go down as a coward. And contrary to the values of our culture. And so we were reading all these books and seeing right before our eyes what the fruit of pagan culture is, and, and it is shocking. But then we compare it by reading um, biblical cultures such as Genesis, Exodus, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, and reading books by C.S. Lewis that also, and in very intriguing ways, make those same stories modern. But then we get to 8th grade omnibus, and we study the medieval period, but really it's a, it's a um, class that starts with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Acts of the Apostles. And the first book we read in there is Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History, and then we read other books such as Augustine's Confessions, and right now we're reading Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. And what is intriguing to me about this, these books that we read in church history is that it's like reading the Acts of the Apostles. It's a continuation. You see the same spirit and the same power at work, not just through the church, but throughout history, transforming cultures. It reminds me a lot of um, the testimony in Thessalonica of the unbelievers in response to the ministry of Paul and Silas. Acts 17, 6-7 says this, but when they did not find Paul and Silas, the people were looking to lay hands on them. When they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Their testimony about Paul and Silas 
Remember I said commitment to the apostolic calling? Their testimony is these men have turned the whole world upside down. And there's no truer way to describe it because a world system that's governed by sin, that's governed by tyranny and oppression that is contrary to love, that is selfish rather than selfless, when this apostolic power goes through the earth ministering from the church of Jesus Christ, the only way they can describe it is it's turning the whole world upside down. Isn't that exactly what it's doing? You see, these, these books that we're studying in that class show an incredible power that brought cultural transformation. We were reading St. Augustine, and St. Augustine was um, right at the verge of the collapse of the Roman Empire because the wine couldn't, couldn't take the new wine. And, and Augustine was the epitome of everything a pagan culture had to offer. He was an orator, so he was of a high-class profession that was esteemed in the eyes of men. He had wealth. He had women. And yet his own testimony was this, O oh Lord, our hearts are not at rest until they find their rest in thee. You see, and his conversion was a type and a pattern and a model for the whole culture that the values of this culture cannot abide the values that are working through the church. They're incompatible. And just like the cry of Augustine, oh Lord, my heart had no rest until it found its rest in you. It's the cry that everybody who has met Jesus Christ today can also say, Oh Lord, I was thirsty and you gave me rivers of living water. That when a person drinks them, they are truly satisfied and they never thirst again. And, and, and Augustine would say, just like Ecclesiastes, everything that I was living for and seeking, it always promised me heaven and delivered me hell. It was a grasping after the wind. It was vanity. But then in Jesus Christ, I have found fullness of life. And now instead of living for the pleasures of the flesh, I'm living to serve the glory of God. Mm. But the latest book that we've been reading is Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Now, I began this book with my own personal mission because as I pondered what actually happened, that these barbarian tribes, these pagan tribes, which the Roman Empire could not conquer and had to put a wall through the land and put them over on the other side, they all got converted and civilized through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I began reading this book with asking the question, what was it about their Christianity that had the power to convert a pagan culture because we need to find that same power to reconvert a repaganized America. Mm. You know, so that, that book begins with the conversion of a man named Albin. Albin was an unbeliever. And, and this actually still happened during the Roman time of the Roman Empire, during the Diocletian persecution, the king, the, the king of the Britons started to persecute the Christians that came through from the Roman Empire. And so this priest goes running away. They're going to kill me. And this man named Alban takes in this, this priest. And as he watched the priest's devotion 
in character, in morality, morality and love. As he started to hear the testimony of this priest, he was cut to the heart and he was converted on the spot. The power of infectious Christianity. And then when the king found out that this priest was at Albin's house, he sent soldiers to come get him. And Albin hid the priest, put on the priest's clothes, and was taken in his place. And when he was brought before the king, the king was livid. How dare you trick me like this? And so he starts to beat him and torture him. And, and thinking that it will snuff out the confession of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, this is Eusebius. This is the Acts of the Apostles. And everything he did only caused this man to praise the Lord and to thank the Lord and act in love. So he said, there's nothing left for me to do but to execute him. And so he commanded his execution. They went out to, ex to the place of execution. But there was such a big crowd that they couldn't cross the bridge. And so the history states that Albin prayed on the spot and God dried up the river. And they walked across on dry ground. Sound familiar? And when they got to the other side, he was thirsty and he prayed and a spring of water sprung up while the river came back into its place. And the executioner seeing these miracles was also converted on the spot. And so he ends up being executed with Albin. And then it says that the, the executioner who executed them, it said that his eyes popped out. And then the testimony was that the king of the Britons, after seeing these miracles, had 180 degree um, repentance. And instead of persecuting the Christi Christianity, he stopped and protected it because of the miracles that took place. But it all began because of this priest's lifestyle was so noble and so praiseworthy. The beauty of holiness, the, the, the joy of the Lord, the liberty that's in Jesus Christ so captivated this man, Albin, that he converted on the spot and was willing to be a martyr for the Lord. And then it goes on to tell a whole lot of other stories of people like Gregory who saw these English people being sold as slaves and something got in his heart and he said, how can these people whom, whom Christ has died for be um, living in darkness any longer? And he wanted to go as a missionary, but responsibilities didn't let him. But when he became Pope, which by the way, the papacy was very different then. Pope Gregory said himself, if any bishop tries to claim supremacy over the other bishops, he's an antichrist. But this Pope Gregory, he sends a man named Augustine, not Augustine of Hippo, but of Canterbury, to the English people to convert these pagans. And so Augustine shows up, and one of his first converts is King Ethelbert. And I was so moved by reading this history book because it includes all these letters from Gregory. And those letters are like reading the New Testament, the letters of Paul. He writes to Augustine with such a father and shepherd's heart, thinking and pondering and praying, how can we reach these people and sending them advice, saying, Augustine, try this and try that. And then when, when uh, Ethelbert converted, he wrote him a letter. And the essence of this letter, in my paraphrased quick version, goes something like this. King. I rejoice to hear about your newfound faith in the Lord. 
And I want to exhort you that the reason why God raises up leaders in positions of authority over men is so that by them and through them, he can exhibit the glorious and beautiful reign of his love towards men through them. So I exhort you that you would reach out to your subjects and convert them from idolatry and that you would lead them as a shepherd, leading them by example through a godly and virtuous life. Do you hear those values? King, this was a Christianity that expected kings to govern in a way that reveals the government of our Father in heaven. They expected kings to lead by example as servants rather than tyrants. We've lost some of that dream, but that was part of that apostolic dream to convert all people and let them see the reign of Jesus through his people who are raised to positions of authority. It reminds me a lot of the book of Ruth. When we have Boaz governing his household, he governs his household in such a way that those who serve on his land, instead of complaining about how he uses us and abuses us, how, he, how we're just a commodity, we're, just a, we're a number and not a person, no, they say, Thank you, God, for this man, Boaz. Thank you for the way he treats us like his own children. Thank you for the way he provides for us generally. Thank you for his abundance, and we pray your blessing upon him. And so you read this book about the kings of England, and many of them, they exalt kings that rule in such a manner. And it says the people loved them because all they did was to serve for the benefit of the people. And how different is that than the kind of leadership we see exhibited in our nations today? See, this is the repaganization of a culture. It's a different value system that causes tyranny and oppression. It's a, as it says in God's word, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. And people are groaning today. And we need to recover some of this Christianity that had the power to convert you know, another, story, another letter that came from Gregory, which really touched my heart, was in response to the fact that God in his mercy, so wanting to reach out to these unbelievers and these pagans, started working miracles through Augustine. In Pope Gregory, he writes to Augustine like a father, with deep concern for him, and he says something along the lines of, I praise God that God is working these great miracles through your hands. So I want to exhort you, don't get puffed up with pride. Don't let your head swell too big because just remember you're just a man in an earthen vessel and all glory and honor and praise belongs to the one who loves the people so much that he reaches out with signs and wonders and miracles. You see, you're, you see this picture of a Christianity where even this miracle worker has friends that hold him in check because they love him with a father's heart. And they're a team working together to, to Christianize and make disciples and liberate people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So quickly, I want to just mention five elements that I've noticed as I've been reading this book that was really evident among the church that had the power to Christianize these pagan lands. The first thing 
is that these Christians had a radical love for Jesus Christ. The first thing that marked their lives was a life of devotion. You know, Patrick was used by God to convert many in Ireland. And many times a day, he would get on his knees and worship and pray and give thanks to God. You look at these early Christians, and their life was a life of prayer, of singing the Psalms, of serving with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. And their devotional life was was preeminent. They were always thanking and praising God. And they had a, a, a radical prayer life, praying without ceasing, And they had a radical dedication to the king of kings. They lived their lives not for what do I desire, but oh my God and my king, what do you desire? What is pleasing to you? How can I be pleasing to you, Lord? That was the first thing. The second thing is they preached the gospel of the kingdom. Like that letter that I just talked about from Gregory to Ethelbert. It wasn't just, hallelujah, praise the Lord, when I die by and by, I'll fly away and go to heaven. You see, a major part of the problem in Christianity today is that we've created a a value system where it's all about believing in Jesus and going to heaven when you die. If you believe these doctrinal truths, you will get to go to heaven, free pass. It's no different than the selling of indulgences at the time of the Reformation. But these Christians, they preached and lived the gospel of the kingdom. He is Lord. His law is love, and I will obey. I will serve. It was more about walking with God than believing a doctrinal confession. You see, because the devils believe all every doctrinal confession we can put out there, but they're headed for hell. These people walked in agreement with the king. They walked in his presence. They walked in love. And we need to do the same if we're going to re-Christianize this land. Um, number three, this is an interesting one. When I thought of making the title for this message, re-Christianizing a re-paganized culture, I know that some people without listening to the whole message, would completely get the wrong idea. Because there has been this brainwashing or this program where people have bought into the lie that it's unloving to promote Christianity. That it's intolerant to promote one religion above every other religion. But these Christians that transformed cultures and brought freedom and life and liberty to the nations, they dared to believe that Christianity is the good and the best for all people of all time everywhere. And until we, re, we get that value back into our heart and believe that the most loving thing we can do is turn people away from worshiping idols, from worshiping the flesh, from worshiping our own bellies and worshiping other gods and worshiping and serving King Jesus, that this is the greatest act of love. Until we get that value in our hearts, we will never connect with the power of God. Number four, They had a radical love, not just for Jesus, but for one another. As the word says, how can you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you do see? Jesus said, this is how they'll know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. And one of the most powerful ways to create a church that can transform culture is to love one another. And see, right now, see, 
I used to love, or I still love, to read Christianity and theological writings from about the 1850s. And the reason why is they would make bold statements such as the greatest way to curb crime in society is by teaching the word of God and that Christianity has the power to change lives and make people good and loving and ethical and moral. But now the people in America will honestly say, prove it by your life. If your lifestyle doesn't prove it, then we're preaching a lie to the nations. We are not being his witnesses. Speaking the word is not being his witness unless the life proves the power. And that those Christians, they prove by their devotion, by their morality, by their sacrifice, that Christianity has the power to make us loving. In number, fi- in number five, they saw the church as the vehicle through which the kingdom of God advances. You know, reading all those stories, it reminds me of the book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar saw this image, and we know that the image represented the kingdoms of the Babylonians and the, and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And then the vision was that in the time of that last empire, a rock would be hewn not of human, by human hands, and it would strike the image and demolish it. And it would be an everlasting kingdom which should never be removed. And that kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. And that is what all these books are describing, is that kingdom moving and advancing throughout world history, liberating people from the tyranny and oppression of sin and setting people free and giving them dignity and life and hope and every blessing in Jesus Christ. And it's time we reconnect with that power. So quickly, some of, the, some of those values unpacked. The first one is the, kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God. You see, the gospel, if I asked, you know, my first professors at Bible college, what is the gospel all about? They would say the gospel is all about Jesus died for your sins and because of this you're forgiven. And that is essential to the gospel, it's the foundation, it's the means, but it's not the full gospel. Listen to Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So it's the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Acts 28, 30 through 31 shows that the apostolic church had the same message. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. You see, it is the gospel of the kingdom of God that that apostolic church preached. And Acts 17, 30 through 31 says this, It's one of the examples of apostolic preaching. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. 
God commands all men everywhere to repent. How far have we gotten from that message? That those Christians that I was talking about, they went out with that conviction. God commands you to repent because that's a loving message. He commands you to turn away from worshiping idols. Why? Because when you worship idols, you're worshiping the creature. In the end, result is a culture of death. So God commands you to repent. If you're not worshiping and serving and following Jesus, you are part of the problem of evil in this earth. And these Christians believed that with total conviction. And they went out. We need to renew our minds because the world says that's even such language is unloving. It's not. It's truly loving. It's God's word. He commands all men everywhere to repent. That's how Paul preached it. See, the kingdom of God is all about submission to a king. If there's a kingdom, he has to rule the kingdom. Isn't that right? And a king rules his kingdom with his law. And the law of Christ's kingdom is love. That is something that is beautiful. But what does this kingdom look like? Remember we talked about the Thessalonians and they said about Paul and Silas, these men have turned the whole world upside down? Well, that gospel of the kingdom turns the world upside down. And so many scriptures talk about that kingdom and we could never exhaust it in one Sunday, let alone years and years of Sundays. But I do want to bring out one Bible verse that describes it so well. And it it's, comes from Matthew 20, but it begins with James and John, two apostles of the Lord, and their mama. Now, look, maybe it went something like this. Their mom is saying, so, sons, how's it going with you and Jesus? And they're like, oh, it's going really well. So, has Jesus given you your positions as the most important people yet? Mom, what are you talking about? Sons, you don't know how to, how to politic good enough. Let me come and help you out. So the mom drags the two sons to Jesus and, and says, Lord, when you come to your kingdom, can my two sons sit at your right and your left hand? And Jesus says to them so graciously and lovingly, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And totally understanding what it was all about, they go, yeah, we can. And Jesus says, yes, you will. But I tell you, you know, to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but my Father in heaven. Oh, okay. And meanwhile, the other apostles are watching this go down, and they're not too happy about it. And so now you, you can just imagine what that kind of atmosphere would be like. You know, it's starting to go down the wrong road. And so Jesus, in his love, puts it back into order. And how he puts it into order is not by slamming them down, but inspiring them with a different vision, by inspiring them with a different dream. And here's what it says, Matthew 20, 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him become your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see the value of the kingdom of God, it's the complete world system overturned. Instead of living for you exist for my pleasure and my goal is to exalt myself over you, Jesus said if you want to be great, you need to become least and become servant of all and that you find your reward, you find your blessing, you find your significance in lifting others up rather than putting other people down. That is the dream of the kingdom of God. And that's, at, that's what's at stake in this cultural war. What shall be the value system? It's, it, all the heroes of our culture today say get money, get wealth, get power, get influence. Uh, get whatever will make you satisfied no matter whose expense it is at. But Jesus came and taught us to become servants. And servant leadership is the only kind of leadership that, that makes heaven reflected on earth. Every other type of system makes hell on earth. I remember when I was at a gym one day, and this guy named Gary was sitting there, and I heard him shooting off his mouth. And he was going, politicians, greedy corporate CEOs. And he was just going on and on and on. And I was a little bit away from him hearing this and, get, and my spirit was rising up in me, you know. And then he said something that brought me over. He says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so I went over to him and I said in nice Christian pastor language, you're full of it. <laughs> he goes, what do you mean? I go, first of all, there's only, to think that any human being can have absolute power is nothing but arrogance and pride. There's only one who has absolute power, and he can never be corrupted. And he looked at me with little eyes like saucers. And he says, well, so many people who get power and authority, they get so corrupt. I go, that's because they've lost the fear of God. They've lost the values of the kingdom. You see... Our founding fathers, they knew that a man can only rule if he rules on his knees before the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that one day I'll have to give an account of my ministry to the Lord and understands that the value has to reflect his government of the people. Such people cannot be corrupted. They cannot be bought off with bribes. They cannot use other people for their own glory and own pleasure. Why? Because I have one purpose, and which is to do glory and honor to him. And those are the only ones that can be entrusted to lead the nation. And when I was telling this man, Gary, that, he just sat there silent, and then I walked off. In about a half hour, he came over in tears saying, you've given me hope. Because he looked out in this world of darkness and saw nothing but evil because he never had heard the gospel of the kingdom of God. We need to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. This gospel is also radically connected to Psalm 133. 
I, just for time's sake, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I had a vision of this psalm rolled out like a scroll when I was a new Christian. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You see, we need to come into unity under this gospel of the kingdom. And that's where God commands the blessing. That's where the anointing that breaks the yoke is manifested. And this is where I'm trying to bring it home to Life Springs Church here today. Because that was a dream that was in my heart as a brand new Christian. And I remember one of the first pastors that I ministered under was a man named Pastor Ted. And he saw me when he used to go out to Planned Parenthood every week and in, in bear witness. And I used to go down there and bear witness with him, and they would just hold signs. But you had to stay so far away from the building that it really wasn't capturing anybody. So I said, we need to preach to them. And so me, I brought a friend down there, and we used to preach as people went in, saying things like, let, let me tell you, we just want you to hear the other side. We want you to, to be told the full story. Has anybody told you about post-abortive shock syndrome? Has anybody, you know, told you what your options are? This pregnancy is not the end of your life. I'm not telling you what to do. I just want you to come and hear the other side. And people would come, you know, and we would send them to the pregnancy counseling center. But Pastor Ted watched me and this other man ministering there, and he pulled me aside and he said, Bill, I've never seen this before. I go, what are you talking about? He was a pastor who was the son of a pastor. He grew up in the church. It's what he knew his whole life. And he said, I've never seen people minister in unity like that. He said, because of all I've seen is ministers um, jockeying for position, trying to one-up one another. And, and I looked at him and I said, how could we not want to be in unity because we have one mission, and if we can further that mission, he's glorified. So what he was telling me is that the very values of the church are contrary to the values of our king who instituted it. But when I came here to Life Springs Church, and I would sit down and spend time talking with Bishop Ron, I found out that that passage was the same dream that had been in his heart from the beginning. And his goal has been to raise up a team and to raise up a church that lives this Christian kingdom value in practical life. I wanted to bring this home to us here this morning because sometimes we don't realize the, the, how unusual it is what we have going here. And, in the, in the, and there is warfare against this church because this kind of value system is the hope to re-Christianize and liberate a culture that's degenerating into darkness. And so when the enemy can pluck people off and weigh people low and rob you of life and, and rob you of value and worth and dignity and not let you value what we're a part of, it's trying to quarantine this kingdom reality. 
But what we have here as, as a leadership team in this church is a bunch of people that have one heart, no king but King Jesus. And if, if Mike can go and, and heal the sick and people come to know the love of Jesus Christ, the rest of us are behind him saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, go for it, brother. You know, if another person goes and ministers to somebody and breaks them out of depression so that they know the joy of the Lord, the rest are like, hallelujah, praise the Lord, brother. We've got a team that weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice and, and has a single passion to make this a reality in the midst of the congregation. This is how we reconnect with that apostolic power that transformed the cultures from the beginning. But I want to say that that value that we're trying to model here in the church has to become the value of every believer in this body. Really, it needs to become the mainstream value of Christianity once again. And I can take you back to the founding of America and show you that the, that the mainstream Christian values of that day were so radically different than the mainstream Christian values of today. But we as a body need to commit ourselves, covenant ourselves to buy in 100% to the gospel of the kingdom and live it no matter what in obedience to the king and, and have every person live for one reason, to be his witness. When I say to be his witness, we need to witness not in word alone but in deed. See, for many people, Christianity is all about staying away from sin. Isn't it? It's a whole list of what you should not do. You shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that, and you shouldn't do this. And then the people say Christianity is all about keeping you from having any fun. When the opposite is the exact truth. It's no fun when people murder you or murder your family, or murder your friends. It's no fun when people steal from you. It's no fun when people cheat and lie to you. Isn't that interesting? It's contrary to love, according to God's word. But instead of being a list of what you should not do, we need to reconnect with that life of devotion that I was talking about. They had a dream that I would be holy like he is holy. I will be his witness proving by my life that there's power in the gospel to make us loving. And that kind of life, the life of holiness, has peace and joy. It truly satisfies. It gives a peace that the world knows nothing of. It gives a joy that brings true contentment. We need to rediscover the beauty of holiness because that's what it is. It's beautiful. Holiness is beautiful. What is it? It's to be like Jesus. It's to be like our King, to be like our Lord who was anointed with the oil of gladness above his brethren. The kingdom of God, what does it look like? Romans 14, 17 says this, for the kingdom of God is not an eating and drinking, but in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God, what does it look like? Righteousness, walking in love. And that, in so many, that is our commitment, isn't it? But that's not enough. If you are lacking peace in your life, you're outside of the kingdom. 
If you're lacking the joy of the Lord, you're outside of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, your inheritance is in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And if we're lacking the joy of the Lord, if we're lacking the peace of God, if we're stressed out, if we're anxious, if we're worried, if we're weighed down with the cares and concerns of this world, if we are discontent in any way, we are false witnesses of Jesus Christ. Our testimony is don't, don't follow Jesus for he has no power. But the good news is that the true church throughout the ages has demonstrated that the life of holiness is a life of walking with God and it is beautiful. That's why Augustine says, oh Lord, our hearts find, have no rest until they find their rest in thee. And Jesus could tell the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I give shall never thirst again. And this is the kingdom of God, walking in love by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we want to reconnect with that apostolic calling and mission, we need to major on the Holy Spirit as a church. You see, the church would never have had the power that we discussed and, and showed you if it wasn't for one day. And that was the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Then you will be my witnesses, demonstrating that there is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ to make us loving, to give us peace, to give us joy, to save us from our sins, to deliver us from evil, to bring forth the culture of life and blessing and freedom and liberty. But without Pentecost, there is no power in the church. And, you know, as, as, he, as Paul said, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. There is power in the gospel, but we need to live it. We need to prove it. And it's what God wants for us. And how horrible is this? What does it look like? Peace and joy? Who doesn't want that? That would be absurd. But the good news is the Bible teaches us how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's many passages, but just for time's sake, I'm only going to read one. Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. How? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, connecting with the power of God is often so simple. Thank Him. Praise Him. Spend time thanking Him. Instead of magnifying the problems and magnifying what's wrong, worship him. Behold his beauty. Become like him. Fall so in love with Jesus and see if it doesn't light a fire in our midst and a fire in our friends and a fire in our community. And worship him and see if the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't start to move with signs and wonders and miracles, captivating a heart of a world that is being led down into destruction in hopelessness and despair because of sin. People being abandoned. 
people being left with no hope, people being treated like they're commodities, as though human life has no value. The church can turn that around when we get filled with the Holy Ghost and walk in the beauty of holiness. But that other thing that they did is they were all in one heart and one mind and one accord, and they were praying. And those are the two other things that our church is doing with these prayer groups that, we're, that many of us are involved in day after day after day. And, and people in unity want, rejoicing if anybody is used by God and celebrating the victories of the Lord. Because what is at stake is our children's future and our, in the future of all posterity. What kind of culture are we going to give them? The good news is that we can turn the light back on in America because that light is Jesus and he is revealed through the Holy Ghost. I want us to be committed to that apostolic calling as a church because it is a warfare, but it doesn't weigh you down if you walk in the Holy Ghost. Every time those apostles were beaten, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. I want us too to dare to believe with everything that is in our heart that God can turn the tide of darkness in this culture through us as a body in unity. And I want us to be committed this year to doing it and to engage in it. So let's just stand up and, and maybe we can have uh, Jeff play a little music, but I want us to take some time to seal this calling in prayer. Because hearing a word doesn't, doesn't really make a difference. The only thing that makes a difference is if we go out there and do it. And, and, the, and, the, and the vision that I hope I painted here this morning is something so simple. If I was to sum it up, fall madly in love with Jesus. Fall in love with the beauty of holiness. Walk in total devotion and love for King Jesus. And see if the Spirit of the Lord doesn't start to bring in the people out of darkness into the light. And set them free. And make them truly alive in Him. So I just want to invite anybody who wants to just make a, a dedication in their heart to this apostolic calling in the gospel of the kingdom of God, just come up to the front and, and say to the Lord, just by coming up saying, it says to the Lord, Lord, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to your kingdom. Lord, I invite you to bring us together into unity. I invite you, Lord, to search me and try me and deliver me from everything in my life that is contrary to the kingdom of God. Lord, I invite you to come and to make me holy, but in make me holy in a way that would show the nations the beauty of holiness, the beauty of righteousness, that would show the world that when we know Jesus, we drink living water which truly satisfies. Let us testify to this world and be his witnesses by inviting the only power that has power to turn the tide of darkness in this generation and that is the power of the Holy Spirit 
And the good news is that it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's the Father's pleasure to give us. If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So, Father, we do come before you right now. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask you that you would bind us together in unity, that you would bring that kind of unity where you command the blessing. Lord, that you would knit this body together as such a team that we would all rejoice in each other's victories and blessings, Lord God, and that we would weep when others are weeping and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Lord, we pray that you would ignite in us a fire of radical love for Jesus Christ, that you would cause us to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But most importantly, Lord, that you would give us a fresh indwelling and manifestation of your Holy Spirit today. Lord, we just invite you to come and rule and reign over us. For Pentecost is the manifestation that Jesus is King and Lord of this kingdom that has been established forever, that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we pray right now that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Hallelujah. I want Pastor David to come up here. You know, the Bible says where two or more agree concerning anything, it shall be done. And here in the presence of two or more witnesses, I want him to agree and pray and seal that for us in Jesus' name. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Well, Lord, what a magnificent word. And the Bible is such a magnificent word. We come into agreement, I agree with Pastor Bill, Lord, on this calling as we step forward to say that we dedicate our lives to you, Lord, that we will not just proclaim you verbally, we will put it in our feet, in our heart, in our actions, Lord God, that the things that are going to go on here at Life Springs, that some of the leaders will go, wow, look at all the people we have. Look what they want to do. Look how they're fighting to be able to teach this Sunday to teach our kids, to go out, to witness, to go to the hospitals, whatever's on our heart, Lord God. I agree with your word today, Lord, that you're such a magnificent God. The power of the Holy Spirit is with us. We cannot do anything outside of you, Lord. I just proclaim that over everybody that's here in the name of Jesus, Lord God. All the things that they came for today, to be strengthened, to be rejuvenated, to go forth in our calling. I agree, Holy Spirit. I agree with you. Come, Holy Spirit, continue to guide us. Help us to go proclaim the gospel. Help our hearts to be healed. Help our bodies physically to be healed. Those that have been proclaimed over, Lord God, I re-proclaim it. I agree with it. In the name of Jesus, we will walk this out. We will walk out this healing. We will walk out your word, Lord God. Thank you so much. And we lift this up and I pray a blessing over these that are here. I pray that the days, the weeks, the years to come, that this will be scribed in our hearts that we are called to the mission field here, that we are to go after the lost. Thank you so much. We lift it up in the mighty name of Jesus. And all of us that love you so much, we say, amen.
Thank you all so much. Have a, what a magnificent word. How about a round of applause for the Bill and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week.